Acts chapter 2, well, where we have been so far in Acts chapter 1, we have seen the ascension and the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. And then what we get, what we saw two weeks ago, is the, the event of the Pentecost when the Spirit fell and came into the upper room. And we look specifically at the implications or the, of the event of the Pentecost by looking at the specific phenomenon, the sound and the tongues of fire and then the tongues of the proclamation of the gospel and foreign languages and those incredible phenomenon. And now this morning we see both the response of the crowd in short, and then we dive into what is the first sermon of the New Testament church by Peter. So we're going to pick up in Acts 2, verse 12, and I'll read through verse 21 following your Bibles so or on the screen as I read out loud. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are simply filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, he's saying, it's 9 a.m. No one's drunk at 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions and your old men, men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, this is the first sermon of the New Testament church. As Peter responds to the issue and the question of, are these people drunk? And so in response to that, Peter launches into a sermon. And like any good pastor, uh, Peter's sermon has three points. We didn't read all the points this morning, but he'll go throughout the next couple weeks as we'll look at this sermon. But his three points fall along three quotations from the Old Testament. The first quotation we'll look at this morning from Joel 2, as he will have the, the point that we are now in the last days because of the coming of the spirits. And then what we'll look at next week is we'll see in Psalm 16, his second point is that Jesus is risen And then finally, he'll look back at Psalm 110 and show that Jesus is the ascended Lord. And then, like a good preacher, he'll make a call for repentance and belief, an altar call, so to speak, except there's no, you know, take me as I am 12 times or whatever the song is, but there's just simply this simple call to come repent and believe. Now, for those of you that are looking at this and going, now listen, this is a short sermon, three points takes up one page. In verse 40, this is just to kind of give me some support. In verse 40, it says this, and with many more words, Peter went on to describe God's works. This is just a foretaste. Listen, uh, Peter probably preached for a good 40 minutes, wouldn't you think? Maybe 50 every once in a while? 
Listen, and then there was a time in Acts, which you may get to, when Paul preaches all day, all day, people, so much so that someone fell out of a window and died. Ain't no one dying around here, so I don't want to hear no complaining, all right? Three points, though, and since that's a good way to do it, actually, we have four this morning, but um, this morning, what we're going to look at and is this idea of, from Joel 2, this, this quote from Joel 2 in the coming of the last days, and you're going to have to bear with me this morning. I... I thought about simply taking this whole sermon of Peter's and going point by point as he did and kind of giving you a sketch of the whole thing. But frankly, I don't like Christians to be confused. And when you read stuff like this, and the sun shall be turned, the darkness and the moon to blood, we get confused. <laughs> and, um, and so as a means of trying to bring some clarity, I'm going to have to do some teaching this morning and a little bit of explaining in order to drive this home as to what is actually going on in this text and what Peter is trying to say. So bear with me. This is going to be a little esoteric this morning, and hopefully, though, we'll drive to the main point near the end. I hope to not take too long to get there. But we're going to be talking about this idea and this, this idea of the last days. That's how Peter begins his quote of, the, of, the, uh, of Joel in Joel 2, in which he says, In the last days... He says, the last days have come. And so that, that's Peter's point. That's where we'll start as well. Your first point this morning is simply this, the coming of the last days. The context is the, pe- the people have heard um, the disciples, this 120, have left the upper room and they've gone out into the, the city and probably at the, the synagogue or the tabernacle or the temple there and have proclaimed and preached God's word and their proclamations have gone out in various languages. And people's response is, what in the world does this mean? And then other people's response is, they got to be drunk. That's the only explanation for this. And Peter's response to, are they drunk, is to go to the Old Testament. That's your response when people ask you if you're drunk, right? He goes to Joel 2, and he goes and he says, no, they aren't drunk. But instead, what he says is, what happened in Joel 2, what's, what it was said there, that is what is happening here. There is one of the most well-credentialed um, commentators on Acts, a guy named F.F. F. Bruce, a number of years ago, wrote a book called This Is That. And what he's doing, he's literally quoting from the beginning of verse 15 or verse 16 of Acts 2 in the old King James Version. And which in the King James Version, verse 16 of Acts 2 says this, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In other words, what he's saying is, what Peter's saying is what you see today on the day of Pentecost, this is what Joel was talking about. This is what he was pointing forward And so in order to understand Acts 2 and to understand better Peter's point in pointing back to Joel 2, we need to go to Joel 2 and get some context for us this morning. So Joel, Joel is in the Old Testament. Joel was a prophet of God. The prophets of old, we actually providentially looked at Jesus as the perfect prophet this morning. The prophets came and spoke God's word. They revealed God to the people primarily they functioned as kind of covenant lawyers. They would take God's law and they'd look back at it and evaluate God's people based on, are they covenant keepers? Are they keeping the law of God? And if they aren't keeping the law of God, they would have from the Lord various judgments or disciplines or curses that would come down upon the people. And that is what is going down down in Joel. And Joel 1, if you've actually turned there in your Bible, you don't necessarily need to. I'm going to move through this quickly. But in Joel 1, what we see is that a plague of locusts has been sent by God as a means of judgment upon the people of Israel. Now, a plague of locusts, you might say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But a plague of locusts in an agricultural society is a deep uh, recession or depression. 
It means the devastation of the entire nation and the country. It means the loss of life by starvation for many people. It is indeed a significant act of judgment. And then we come to chapter 2, where Joel continues his prophecy of God's judgment. But then halfway through Joel 2, it says this, and it talks about this, that God will have compassion on his people, that he will have pity upon them. And then it goes on to say that he will then reestablish his blessings for his people, that after this time of judgment, he will give his, his blessings to them, and he will care for them, and he'll send his salvation. And then it says in Joel 2.28, which is the passage that Peter's going to quote, it says, and then after these things, after this blessing has been revealed, the Spirit will be poured out. Now what Peter does, so we can go back to Acts 2 now, now that we've got some context of Joel 2, what Peter does is he takes that Joel 2.28, and he says, instead of saying afterwards, he says, in the last days. And in other words, what Peter is saying is, the blessing has come. That's Jesus, by the way. The blessing has come, and now what we're seeing is the coming of the Holy Spirit in power, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But the propositional statement that Peter is first and foremost making is this. He's saying, as he quotes Joe 2, that these are the last days, that we are in the last days right now. Now, this is kind of a literary kind of language that the scriptures use in a number of places kind of to, to speak about an age of time, biblical age of time, last days. But because of the way the scripture uses it, sometimes we get confused. When we think of last days, we think of the time right before the, the world ends, but the last days actually refers to the time in between Jesus' first advent and his work on earth and the time before his second coming where he'll come in salvation and in judgment. But two questions that has to be asked this morning that I think that you're asking about the last days. Question one that you may have heard or thought about the last days is this. You might say, wait, I thought the last days was that whole Armageddon thing. Like when there's like, war in the Middle East and like, you know, there's all kinds of weird apocalyptic things going on. I thought that was the last days and like people suddenly disappear and like, let, you know, Kirk Cameron shows up places and like, that this, this, these are the last days, right? And, and, and that, that's not exactly what's going on. The New Testament understands the last days as being the time that you and I are living in now. And I'm going to show you this just to give some scriptural proof behind this so that I'm not just going to Flapping my gums. Hey, 1 Peter 1.20, it says this. He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, or in some of your translation says in former times, long ago and many times and many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. Then verse 2. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, kind of uses another terminology that's similar. It says this, picking up in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, where they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's a number of other places in the New Testament where it talks like this, that we are living in the end of the ages, that we are living in the last days. So that's one question. The last days don't refer to the rapture, or to some millennial period, or to war in the Middle East, okay? We are in the last days now. The second question some might ask is, so if we are in the last days, why in the world have been the last days been going on for 2,000 years? I mean, when you think about last days, you usually think, well, okay, it's a couple days. 
But that's not exactly how the scriptures use it. It's clear that the scriptures are using it as the, the terminology to reflect and talk about this age, this time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. These days are last because they're not the former days. The days, as we looked at and just, just saw in Hebrews 1, and it talks about in the former days, God has spoken to us through prophets. That what we see in the time before Jesus' coming, his first coming, is referred to in this kind of narrative language of the former days, and after his coming is called the last days. And then what we're going to see, and we're going to see this in our text today, there is if the last days is different than the last day. There is a difference between the last couple days before your wedding and your actual wedding day, right? There's a difference between the days in which maybe you've been in jail and you're going to get out in a month, those last couple days before you get out of jail and the day you actually get out of jail. There's something bigger and better that happens in the last days. So let me, help, let me give one other illustration to kind of help you understand this. There is, and maybe Cofield will talk about this this week, since he's going to be talking about narrative. But um, one of the most basic outlines or flows of dramatic narrative um, structure, and the Bible is a story, it's a narrative as a whole, it runs like this. It has an introduction section where you introduce the, 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 the characters and the, the themes of the book, and then it has what's called the rising action. It moves up like this, if you were to see it structurally, in which the themes of the book, the tension is created. The themes grow and develop, the characters develop, and it reaches a peak, what is known as the climax. And the climax, in the, in the case of the scriptures, is the cross. How in all these themes, all throughout the Old Testament, have been building and building and building, and how is this going to be resolved? And the climax is the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now that we're on the other side of the climax, it is now what's called the falling action in narrative language. And so what we're finding and what we see, so former days is the rising action. Falling action is the last days. So if you can think of the Bible as simply those two kind of areas, the Old Testament is things are rising, the tension is building, the Gospels is the climax, and now we are in the day of the falling action, the last days, and yet we wait for one other day, one singular day in which everything will be fully and finally resolved. All right, could you follow me there? That was a little bit esoteric. We got creepy and nerdy there for a second, but you're able to go with me. The main proposition is this, that we're in the last days. That's what we're talking about today, and that's what Peter is saying. Now, here's the question. Why does Peter think we're in the last days? Why does he look back? What does he see in Joel 2 that he says, I think that's what's going on here today, okay? That's your second point this morning. The experience is the last day or the, or the, the signs of the last days. There are three experiences or signs that we see in Joel 2 that it appears that Peter is pointing back to, or at least very, two that are very clearly going on in Acts 2, and one we're not so, quite so sure about in any way, shape, or form. But let's just walk through this, A, B, and C. Three signs. The first one is this, that the Spirit is poured out on all people or all flesh. Peter's conviction after seeing the Holy Spirit fall and come down in the upper room and then seeing these people prophesy is he goes, listen, that's what's going on in Joel 2, that the Spirit is now coming down on all peoples. This is, uh, the, the Spirit is poured out. That this is, there is a significant difference in the way the Spirit is moving and working in the New Testament, Pentecost and going forward in the last days, than the, than the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. Now, here's the question. 
Was the, Old Te- was the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament? Yes. The Holy Spirit was regenerating people. He was changing people's hearts. Absolutely. But were people indwelt with the Holy Spirit? No. In fact, what we find is that only a few people, there are a few places where it talks about the Holy Spirit filling people, but it seems to be momentary, and it also seems to be for a specific ministry purpose. For instance, there's one example. So we see prophets filled with the Holy Spirit to go speak and proclaim God's word. We also see a man when the tabernacle is being built by the Old Testament people as they're moving from Egypt to the promised land. As they're building the tabernacle, there was a man, it says, that's filled with the Holy Spirit to do perfect, wondrous carpentry acts in the building of the tabernacle. That for this specific work, the Spirit filled him. The Spirit is poured out, it seems, in drops, in a few people here and there in the Old Testament. But there isn't this permanent presence. But what we find in the New Testament is there's this permanent presence. It is this filling, this baptizing in the Holy Spirit. And so there's greater depth, we could say, in the New Testament. But not only is there greater depth, there's greater width. There's greater width. What we see here is the Spirit is poured out on all peoples, it says. So the idea in the Old Testament, what we see is the Holy Spirit is poured out primarily, and the way you experience God was amongst the people of Israel. If you wanted to be close to God and God's power, you had to be near the temple. You had to be amongst God's people. But now what we see, and the prophet of Joel is saying this, is that all peoples, whether you're an Israelite or not, will be filled with the Spirit of God. And that is a big deal in Acts. You see, Acts 1 and 2 is setting the stage for what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts, where we see the gospel go forward and we see the Spirit fall in power, not just upon Israelites, but upon Samaritans and upon Gentiles to the ends of the earth. So this is why the description here in Joel 2 and in Acts 2 of the Spirit's word is not that the Holy Spirit was sprinkled upon the church. It was poured out upon the church. This is the, the imagery here that is going on in Joel 2 and in Acts 2 is of a monsoon. Jim Whittle, who preached last week, and I were joking about this in regards to his preferred mode of baptism. You might notice that when Jim baptized my daughter last week, he tried to drown her. And, um, you know... Baptists and Presbyterians, we have a debate about the mode of, of baptism, and frankly, who cares? But anybody, he, his debate is that, that we ought to pour, because that's the imagery given in Joel 2 and Acts 2, that when the Spirit is poured out, that we shouldn't sprinkle like we're powdering our kids with sugar. That's not what infant baptism is. we got to pour it on them, and so he douses the kids, but also, it's not like dipping a frozen banana in fondue. The spe- you don't go into the chocolate. God comes on you. Spirit is poured out on you. And that is the imagery that we get in Acts 2. Are you guys thinking about rest of development? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So this is the imagery we get in Acts 2, that when the Spirit is poured out, it is a monsoon. It is not Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit. It is not here and there. It is everywhere and is done in great depth. So that's the first sign, the experience that we see, that Peter's looking at what happens in the upper room, this floodgate of power that has come upon the people through the, the tongues of fire coming upon them, the spirit coming and made manifest in them. And so that's the first sign. The second sign is this, that they will all prophesy. And he quotes Joel 2 here, and what Joel 2 says is, right, young men will have dreams and old men will have visions and all people, they will all prophesy. Now, what's going on here, when, when, when prophecy is God taking revelation, revealing God to God's people, or to God's people, or the, the people on earth, 
taking messages from God to reveal who God is, reveal God's judgment and reveal God's salvation and messages about it, to know about God, and they come and communicate that message to God's people. Now, in the Old Testament, there's interesting ways in which people get that revelation from God. Sometimes it seems like God just comes and gives them the words. But there's other places where it talks about people having visions, right, and dreams. In other words, by this idea of young men having dreams and old men having visions and everybody prophesying, this is an umbrella term for just revealing God. It's an umbrella. All these things are pretty much the same. It's having a, a knowledge of God, whether it be through a dream or a vision or God speaking specifically to you, that you would then take that knowledge and communicate that knowledge about God to the people around you. But in order to understand this, this, this prophecy in Joel 2 of what a prophet is and this prophecy that all will prophesy, we need to better understand prophecy because there's, a great communi- there's great confusion about this idea. There's actually three ways in which the scriptures talk about prophets or prophecy. Three particular ways. The first is the way in which most of you probably think of it, which is Old Testament and New Testament authors. Guys like Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Guys who got specific, special revelation from God, who came and revealed that word and revealed, therefore revealed who God was in a special way with a special message to God's people. You and I never get to fill this role. None of you will ever get to be prophets in this way. These are people who got to write Bible, right? If you show up today and tell us that God gave you a message in a dream last night and it's binding on all the rest of us, we'll say, I'm sorry, but the Bible in Revelation says the canon is closed. You're not a prophet in that way. Now, there is another way, though. There's a second way in the New, Te- way the New Testament talks about it, that there are those who have been given the gift of prophecy and that they have a specific ability like oral ability, thinking ability, communication ability to proclaim God's words and apply it really well to people's lives. That would be kind of the role that a pastor or preacher has. There are even di- there's a difference between a teacher and a preacher and an evangelist. But this is what a prophet would be, someone who's particularly gifted. But there's a general way in which we see that all God's people are prophets. Remember, a prophet ultimately is revealing God's It's telling the world about who God is. And that's what's actually being communicated here in Acts 2. That all who the Spirit of God falls on, who all the Spirit of God is poured out on, those people will prophesy. They will will reveal to the world who God is. And in this way, all of us, if you're a Christian, if you are filled by the Holy Spirit, then you are a prophet. Because you have a message. And what is that message? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message to reveal the glory of who God is to the world. And if you question this idea of all of us being prophets, think about this. There's three significant offices in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfills all those perfectly. But we also see that in some way, shape, or form, God gives us those offices in the way we carry out our work in this world. Right? In the New Testament, we're called the priesthood of all believers, That while in the Old Testament only some were considered priests, now in the New Testament, in a general way, all of you are considered priests of God. In the same way, you are all considered prophets of God in this general way. And this has been the, the desire of Old Testament prophets, not just Joel, but going all the way back to Moses. And so here, in order to give an illustration of this, and this desire and this longing, 
and this proclamation that this is what people from of old have longed for, for all of us to be able to speak God's word and to be prophets, we have to look all the way back to Numbers 11. Listen, as you read through the Bible in the year, you know, you start out in January and you're Genesis and Exodus and things are going great, right? But very few of us actually make it to Numbers. You get kind of bogged down. So some of you may not have made it to Numbers 11, but in Numbers 11, the people are moving through the desert and Moses is leading the people of Israel. But what we find is Moses is getting burned out as a leader. All the judgments that he has to make, the decisions that he has to make. And so God raises up 70 men, 70 elders from among Israel, And they all go to to Moses, and they go before the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And it says there that before Moses, the Spirit of God was poured out on all those elders. And guess what they do? They all prophesy. And we don't say told what they say, but we are told that they say great things about who God is, and they worship God. Now, at the same day, there are two guys that for some reason did, who had been raised up as elders, who didn't make the meeting at the tent. And there, for some reason, they're somewhere else within the camp of Israel, and the Spirit falls on them as well because they've been given this special office, and they start prophesying, and everybody else who don't have the context of seeing all these 70 guys prophesying are going, what in the world are these two doing? Eldad and Medad are their names. Maybe they just didn't like their names. But their Eldad and Medad begin to prophesy, and people are going, they go to Moses and they go, "Um, I don't know if this is okay. They're like out here like saying stuff. Is this all right? They're leading the people with these words. And Moses, here's his response. He says, why would I stop them? I wish that the Spirit would fall on all flesh. So I want to show you over and over and over again that the Bible is one story. That there is a continuity that moves throughout. That this has been the longing that what you have. And this is what this means. that, That what few people in Israel experienced the prophets, and maybe these elders who led the people that experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the ability to, to worship in this way and to communicate and reveal God in this way, this office has been given to you, the run-of-the-mill Christian. You don't have to be special to have this. They would, all of Israel would long to have what you, what you have in Pentecost. And now for us, all of us get the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and all of us fulfill this general office of prophets to proclaim the gospel, to reveal to the world the glory of who God is. That should give you unbelievable boldness. Think about this, Jeremiah and Isaiah. They have these awful tasks in which they're told to prophesy, and there's not some great clarity as to what they're prophesying about. And yet they go out there and they risk their lives as they're beaten and sometimes killed in order to prophesy about the Lord. But you have actually been revealed the mystery of the gospel. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit. That should make you a bold proclaimer of God's words. So that's the two signs. Those things are very clearly going on in Acts 2, right? We see the Holy Spirit fall. We looked at the phenomenon a couple weeks ago. And then they go out, and they're like, all the people from the upper room are preaching the gospel in all these foreign languages. But there's a third sign in Joel 2. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in it, mostly because I don't understand it. Uh, um, the third sign is this, the preceding signs and wonders. And we get real, we get kind of real funky here in 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord. Read that to your kids tonight before bed. The day of the Lord. The key thing I want to, in order to give you some context before I explain this a little bit or try to explain it the best of my ability is there's a key phrase there called the day of the Lord. Remember I talked earlier about there's a difference between the last day 
last days and the last day. The day of the Lord is the last day. The day of the Lord throughout scripture is talked about and prophesied about, and what it means is it is the day in which God's salvation and all of its beauty is fully understood and seen and realized and experienced. But it's also the day in which God's judgment is fully realized and fully experienced. It's the day, it's the second coming of Jesus is what it is, is the day of the Lord, when he comes in salvation and in judgment. So that's, so understand what's going on here. It's saying whatever these phenomenon, these, this moon turning to blood and the darkening of the sky, of the sun and all this is going on in this period of the last days and it will go before Jesus returns. Now, what are the phenomenon? What are these images? They make us rather uncomfortable, don't they? I was telling my wife, my wife was asking me how sermon prep was going this week, and I was going, well, everybody's prophesying and the moon's, moon's being turned to blood, so it's going to be a tough week um, at King's Chapel. But I, I, I don't entirely, let me, let me just, I'll just kind of give you some of the ideas that people have. Some believe these are actual specific historical events that will happen. For instance, some people look at the idea of the sun being blackened, and they point back to the sixth hour when Jesus is on the cross, that when the sun is, there's, the, the sun is, it's, it, becomes dark at noon. And they say these are actual specific historical days. That may be the case, but we don't know what the rest of these are, if they are specific. It's also, some look at this and go, this is simply imagery that is of salvation and judgment. It uses kind of apocryphal kind of language here. The prophets consistently do this, where they use this very vivid imagery to describe both God's salvation and God's judgment and how graphic it is, and blood, and guts, and that kind of thing, and the, the, the moon being turned to blood. By the way, some people think that's a lunar eclipse, right? Because the, the moon looks red during a lunar eclipse. We're not entirely sure, but there are, I think generally, here's what commentators understand it to be, and I think they're correct. Well, they better be, because I'm leaning on them. So to understand, a consistently consensus is this, is that what is being communicated here is it's talking about both the day of judgment and the day of salvation, and that in the between time, in the last days, as we move towards that day, we will see signs, or what we would call wonders, of God's great spiritual work in this world. But we'll also see these devastating, catastrophic events, things that frighten us, things that are tumultuous, things that look like judgments. See, it uses the word wonders there at the beginning. Wonders always refers to God's salvation, whereas signs are often refer- referring to his judgments. In other words, what's going on, if I go back to that dramatic narrative structure, is that as we come on the other side of the climax, and we're a part of the falling action, and as we move towards the day of the Lord, the final and full day of salvation and judgment, that on the way there, we will have experiences, great experiences, both of God's salvation, where we'll see the Spirit of God do wondrous things in this world, but we'll also see awful things happening. We'll see precursors to God's judgment. Now, let me apply this really, really quickly. That means this, that there are things that go on in this world that are indeed activities of God's judgment. They are precursors in, of what will finally and fully happen when he returns. Now, the thing is, we don't know why God's judging us on those things. Unless we have someone who's coming, a prophet, truly God coming and saying, listen, this event is judgment for that sin, right? So when Pat Robertson gets up on the 700 Club and says that 9-11 is, a, is judgment upon America for homosexuality, he actually doesn't know that. And therefore, it's foolishness to say it. It's not foolishness for us to say it's possible that these things that happen, these terrible events, are possibly God's judgments. 
That could be what they, what's going on, but we can't label them as being God's judgment for this because he hasn't told us, okay? So that is what is going on. But what we see here, also you should understand as you look at the narrative of history, is that what we're going to see is I think we're going to see a growing sense of God's work, but also terrible events. They'll go hand in hand. There are some, some people who look at the end times, and what they think is this, is that things are just going to get really, 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 really bad. Eventually, Armageddon's going to hit, and we're going to get raptured out of here, and it's just going to go bad. Right? And so what, when they look at the, the, the progress of history, other people look, and they have a very optimistic view. And they think that what's going to happen is it's going to get better and better and better and better. I think, actually, the scriptural weight of evidence would say that what we're going to see is we're going to see the growth of God's kingdom, and we're going to see the, the growth of God's judgment come on this world, and they're going to go side by side until God finally comes in the final resolution, the final solution of Jesus' returning will come back and clear it all up. And we'll all be happy because we'll have to stop. We don't have to talk about this anymore. But here's, let me talk about two applications in regards to this because I, I know we're, we're muddling through this. Let me try to bring this down a little bit. If we are indeed in the last days, in the last days, the only thing we're looking forward to is the last day. And if that last day is gonna be full of judgment and also full of salvation, that comes implicitly with it a warning and a hope. And here, this is old-time, evangelical, revivalistic religion. It comes with a warning, brothers and sisters, that if we are indeed in the last days and the only other day to come in the epoch of God's time is the day of judgment, that's a warning to those of us who have not trusted in the Lord, who have not called upon the name of Jesus. And it's also a means of motivating us whose job it is to proclaim the gospel, to warn people. Yes, it is... It is Fallen on hard times. We should not be obnoxious. We should not be out with the signs that say the world is coming to an end, right? But we should, this should be a part of our gospel proclamation, is that Jesus has come. The gospel is there. But there is a day in which he's coming back in judgment and salvation, and we need to offer to people and warn to them that that day is coming. The second part, though, there is hope. Because if you have believed in the name of Jesus, it means this, that while we wait... We wait for a final day in which our salvation will be fully realized. Let me give you an illustration of this. Some of you, we all have experienced this, when you have a, um, a presidential nominee that you want to see elected. Now, none of us feel this this way, right? So we're just gonna, we're gonna forget this year, but let's say in the past. In the past, you have your presidential nominee and you're like, when they get elected, you're really excited, right? You're like, what, what do you feel? You feel hope. You feel excited. Things are going to change when they are on the day of their inauguration. Now, do you expect on the day of their inauguration that everything's going to change that day? No. That's what we have now. Christ Jesus has been inaugurated as king, and because of that, we have hope about what he's going to do in this world and about his, his fully realizing the kingdom coming. Right? All the other kings in this world, they give us hope for a moment, and then they disappoint us. Right? doesn't matter who's elected. People will be disappointed. But this king, he needs no election, that when he is inaugurated as king, he will finally, he will fully realize all the promises that he has given to us. And so that's the hope that we have. There's a warning and there's a hope. And that warning and that hope is seen in the promise, the promise of the last days. Third point here, we see at the end of verse 21 and the end of the prophecy from Joel, the promise of the last days, the good news. With the last days being inaugurated, and pointing towards the coming of the last day, there's a very clear, there's two things on the table, isn't there? 
The day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment or a day of salvation. But the beautiful thing, and here's the promise at the end of verse 21, that you can escape judgment and you can experience salvation no matter who you are. Because what does it say? It says this in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the promise. And that we may not come to fully understand all this other stuff, but we love this, that on the day of judgment, the day of salvation, we have this promise leading up to it, that if you call on the name of Jesus, you call on the name of the Lord, you will indeed be saved. That's good news. Now listen, this is a good news that's actually always been there, right? Peter's quoting from Joel 2, and it says, there if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And in fact, the main way in Genesis, the way you are, you are talked about as being an upstanding righteous person is it describes them as being people who call on the name of the Lord. But there's a twist. This is an old message that you're saved if you call on the name of the Lord, but it has two new twists to it. Twist one is this, that Jesus is Lord. That who Lord, the Lord is has been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the greatness of this God that we serve, the greatness of the salvation is seen in Jesus. And so that's one new twist. It's been revealed to us. The second new twist is this, that the invitation that all will be saved <clears throat> and that invitation going out to all people is available to all people and not just to Israel anymore. You see, in the Old Testament, what we have in the Old Testament is a religion that says to the world, come and see. Come and see. You see, Israel is to be this, this nation of blessing. It was to, to show the blessing of God, God's hand upon this nation and all the nations of the earth were to come to Israel and to join them in the worship of God. But now what do we have in the New Testament? We don't have simply just a come and see religion. We have a go and tell religion. Because now the call that all, anybody who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved goes out not just to Israel, but to all peoples. And it means, it tells us, and again, this is a precursor of all that's going to go on in Acts. That this is part of our mission. That we, because of this promise, we can go out to the ends of the earth and tell all the world, if you would simply believe in his name, you may be saved. Now, this leads us to our final point this morning, very briefly, and that's this. It's the ministry of the last days. So we've dealt with all the esoteric stuff. We've dealt with the nerdy stuff. We've dealt with the confusing stuff. We come down to this, pretty much an application point. It's this, that the ministry of the last days is that you get to proclaim the gospel boldly. You get to proclaim the gospel boldly. If you have hope in the coming day of salvation, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, if you believe that there's a day of judgment coming and you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you now have the ability to prophesy the gospel, to reveal God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will proclaim boldly. And here's the question, what does it look like? What does it look like? Well, it looks a little bit like being drunk. Right? The whole context of this passage is what? Are they drunk? Verse 13. Are they drunk? There must be something going on here that is similar to drunkenness. But Peter goes, no, it's not drunkenness. It's Joel 2. So there's a way in which it is like being drunk, and there's a way in which it's not like being drunk. Got it? No. Here, let me talk to you about what it's like, what it looks like about being drunk. When you, if you were to be a bold proclaimer, it looks like being drunk because you have a joyful fearlessness. When you're, well, none of you are inebriated, and hopefully none of you are getting in so inebriated that you're this happy. But if, if someone is, has consumed alcohol, 
right? Ephesians 5, 18 says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That's what's going on in Acts 2. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That if when you, are, when you have alcohol, in, it inhibits you, right? In such a way that you don't care what people around you think. And that is how they're acting. They hear this, these people come busting out of this room, proclaiming no matter what happens, no matter what, they don't care what everybody thinks of them. They're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. What happened 50 days earlier? Jesus, the heart of the gospel, is crucified for proclaiming this gospel. And yet these people are inhibited enough, are drunk enough on the spirit that they're willing to be this bold, that they're so fearless in the face of possible persecution that they would get up in front of the very crowd that shouted, crucify him, crucify him, and say, you crucified him, but you gotta believe in him. Now that's craziness. Only someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit or somebody who's whacked out drunk would say such a thing. And that's why they think they're drunken. Listen, you, you have a new boldness when you proclaim the gospel when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what it's like. That's how it is like drunkenness. How is it not like drunkenness? It's not like drunkenness in this way. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does alcohol chemically, like scientifically do to you? It depresses you, doesn't it? Not like you get in a bad mood. It depresses like your function. And it's a part of the inhibiting it, it lowers your, your, it depresses your brain waves a little bit in such a way that you like, you know, you don't care what people around you think. So in other words, what, it, what alcohol does is make you stupid. So you're, you're, you're communicating boldly about how great you are because you're being stupid. But in the gospel, it's not like drunkenness because what we see here is the opposite of being stupid. Instead, you have a greater intelligence. You have a new knowledge. In other words, drunkenness, when you're drunk, you don't have a great vision of reality. You've lost a sense of what's going on around you. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you now finally and fully for the first time can see reality. That's what's going on. In such a way it's this, that you can see that you can see the proclamation that there's a day of salvation, a day of judgment coming. And so therefore you go, I can see that these people are on the way to judgment and I must do something about it. I gotta do something about it. You see, you have joy in this because, listen, they may do whatever they want to me, but I know I am accepted for for Jesus because God has spoken to me and the objective reality is mine before the throne room of God who says, you are my child and I will never let you go. That's the reality they have. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You look like a fool to everybody else, but it is the truth ultimately and eternally. So here's the question as we come to a close. This is last day's ministry. What do they do? What's going on here? The filling of the Holy Spirit, are they drunk? No, no. They're not drunk. They're involved in last day's ministry. These people are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're given such a boldness and such a fearlessness and such a joy that they are willing to proclaim to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you join last day's ministry? Sounds like a Pentecostal ministry, doesn't it? Yeah. It should be. Last day's ministry, that's what you should be a part of, the proclamation of the gospel. Would you be considered, brothers and sisters, a fool? Would you be so, so blatant and so abundant in your proclamation of the gospel that people might consider that you're drunk? I don't know what that looks like. 
But the people would say, there is something going on with them because of the boldness with which they get up and stand up and say, I love the gospel. Would you be involved in that kind of ministry? The good news is this, brothers and sisters. The mystery of Christ Jesus has been revealed to us. What the prophets long to know, what the elders of Israel long to know, you've got it. And you get to be those prophets. And you have all the promises of the gospel. Therefore, you can be bold, uninhibited by what the world thinks of you. Would you join this gospel work and join last day's ministry? We'll end there and be done. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you, as Paul tells Timothy, we have not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of courage and boldness. And so God, whatever else comes out of today and our understanding of this passage, may that be the understanding that we have been given the Holy Spirit and we have seen the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for us, that he has defeated death in his resurrection and that he reigns eternally on a throne in heaven. May that give us unbelievable boldness, unbelievable courage. And God, where we are fearful, where we are timid, Lord, will we, will we confess and will we repent? And in spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us so that we might be moved by your spirit in power to be the prophets of this age, to be the people who reveal the beauty and the glory of God in the work of Christ Jesus. To so do this in us, Lord, we ask, amen.